started on studying God's Word this morning. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for this place where we could gather together as your church family that you've brought here and open your word, study the message that you've given us. And as we do so, we pray that you would make this more than words to us, but you would reveal your truth, your love, your grace, and your mercy to us as we read this passage today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. People need purpose. We need meaning. We need something to know that we're doing the right thing, that we're on the right track. You can read countless articles in psycho, uh, psychology magazines and websites on the importance of goal setting, setting something to achieve so that we know we're achieving our purpose, we know we're achieving our meaning, we assign something to our lives that's going to give us value as we chase after it. But the issue with setting goals and chasing after them is we as people are often terrible at setting goals, aren't we? A study done by uh, the University of Scranton, which I would have assumed only studied paper, but uh, they studied goal setting. They said 92% of people that set a New Year's goal never achieve them. 92%. And the main reason they found was people set goals that are often either too big or too vague. They're not achievable. But even when people achieve their goals, they often don't find the feelings that they're looking for. If you look to the world of sports, you have somebody like Deion Sanders. Deion Sanders was drafted into both the NFL and the MLB, professional football player and professional baseball player. He appeared in a World Series in 1992. It didn't go his way. Some of you might remember the 1992 World Series. Uh, and he won two Super Bowls. He's the only person in the history of the world to appear in a World Series and Super Bowls. One week, he hit a home run and scored a touchdown in the same week. The only person in the history of the world to do that. And yet, when you read his autobiography, he says during all of that, he had a feeling of emptiness inside the whole time. This man who achieved not one, but two ridiculous goals for a human, and he felt nothing about them. And I find we're often like that as people, right? We're chasing goals that we set that are unachievable, or even when we achieve them, we might find ourselves feeling like Glinda in, in the musical Wicked, wondering what if that joy, that thrill, didn't thrill us like we thought it will, right? What if happiness isn't what happens when all of our dreams come true? What if life isn't a Disney movie? And so as people, if we have this need, this built-in desire for purpose and meaning, this built-in desire for goals, what do we do? What do we do when everything we try to find in this world doesn't seem to fill us the way that media and people tell us it's going to? Well, the good news for us is that God gives us a goal. God gives us a purpose and one that's not going to fail and one that he's personally going to guarantee succeeds. You see, God calls us, those of us who, who follow him, those of us who surrender to Christ as our Lord and Savior, he calls us to follow him in praise and serve him by preaching the gospel wherever we go. And as we're obedient to him, we get to watch as he takes all of the work that we do and he brings his kingdom forward as he guarantees he will. As Christians, we don't need to seek 
uh, a goal. We don't need to seek purpose. It's been given to us by Christ. We join him in the work that he's already guaranteed to finish. And so our purpose, our meaning that we're looking for, we don't need to find it in other places. The only place we need to find it is in God. And to show that this is true, to show that we can rely on God for our purpose and our meaning, that everything we need is found in following God and serving him, we look to the life of Paul today in Acts chapters, end of chapter 22, 23, and 24. We're going through a lot today, uh, so we better get moving or I'm going to get in trouble again for going late. But as we look at Paul at this stage in his life, we're going to see Paul following God, serving him, and all of this chaos in his life is going on around him, and yet he stays firm and he feels his purpose. He feels connected. He never gets lost because he's embraced the gift that God's given him, this life of following him, preaching the gospel, and obeying him. So let's begin as we go through this. If we're called to follow Christ, if we're called to make our goal serving him and preaching the gospel, what does that actually look like? And the first thing we're going to see here is that if we're following God, if that is our goal and our purpose in our life, then we must follow God in good conscience. Starting at the end of, verse, or, uh, the end of chapter 22, verse 30, we find Paul has been arrested in Jerusalem. He's being held. There's been uh, a few uprisings of, involving Paul. The, the peace in Rome has been uh, disrupted. And if you know anything about the history of Rome, peace is incredibly important to the Romans, at least the illusion of peace. They would kill to make sure that things look peaceful. The governors that are put in place by Caesar are there to make sure that things look peaceful. The whole way of life of Rome is all about the Pax Romanus, the peace of Rome, that if you surrender to Caesar, you will find peace. And so anytime there's a, a disruption in the social order, anytime there's disruption around, the Romans take it seriously. And in Israel, in Jerusalem, there's been a whole lot of commotion going on over this guy named Paul. And so the commander of the centurions there calls for Paul to be brought forward. And he calls for the Sanhedrin to meet. Now, as a Gentile, the commander can't go to the meetings of the Sanhedrin. But he can call and ask them to come forward before him to give an account to why Paul is in jail why he's been treated the way he's been treated, why this uprising has been happening. And as the religious leaders are looking for any way to get Paul killed, they gladly come before the commander. So he assembles them together. And when they're there, we get this in the first part of, of chapter 23. It says, Paul looks straight at the Sanhedrin and said, my brothers, I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. Paul stands before the commander of the centurions in, in Jerusalem. He stands before all the Jewish religious leaders, and he says, everything I've done, I've done in good conscience to God. And that's important. As people, we need to make sure that we are following our conscience that we are doing things that we know are right and that we're avoiding things that we know are wrong. But if you look at what Paul says here, it's a little more nuanced than that. It's a little more important. He doesn't just follow his conscience. 
He allows God to shape his conscience and follows as God leads him. He doesn't just say, this is what I feel is right and what I want to do. He says, no, as I've spent time with God in prayer, as I've read scriptures, God has shaped my values. He has shaped how I view the world. And I follow my conscience because it's modeled after God's words. And that is important for us to know as people because too often we just decide that we're going to do with what we believe is right without checking it with scripture. If we go to the next slide, there's a quote here by a guy named Tabiti Enyabuile, and he, he's a, a, one of the people involved in the Gospel Coalition, and this is what he says about following our conscience as people. He says this, what is evident in all of this is that the conscience should be a guide, an alarm system of sorts, but shouldn't be trusted as the final arbiter. The Word of God has that place. Because the conscience needs to be instructed, informed, and sometimes reformed. What Paul is saying here is everything I've done, I've been doing my best to follow God. I have done my best to make sure that in my conscience, I have been seeking after what God has called me to. I've been seeking after his truth and spreading his truth with every, everyone that I meet. Everything that Paul has done is shaped by who God is and who God has called Paul to be. He's allowed God to be the one who directs his life, tells him what is right and what is wrong, where he should go and what he should be doing. Paul seeks to follow God. If we are seeking to follow God, make our main goal in life to be obedient and share the gospel, then we need to make sure that we're shaping our conscience to be like Christ's. It's vitally important. In fact, Paul, in his letter to Timothy, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 19, he writes these words to Timothy, holding on to faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and so have, so have suffered shipwrecked with regard to the faith. Those who have rejected the faith, those who have rejected a good conscience, have suffered suffered a shipwreck of their faith. If you want to make sure you're following God, if you want to make sure that God is the priority in your life, if you want to make sure you're spiritually healthy, you make sure your conscience is aligned with what God's word says. You make sure you do what God teaches. Because people who don't have fallen away. Their faith has turned into chaos it's broken apart. They've realized that they weren't actually following God. They were using him to cover up their own greed, their own desires. They might have talked and spoken about following God, but they didn't align their conscience with him. They didn't really follow him. And because they didn't, their faith turned into a shipwreck. If you want to make sure God is the number one priority in your life, if you want to follow him and obey him with everything you have, you need to understand who he's called you to be. You need to understand who he is and let him be the one who guides your conscience. As soon as Paul says this, however, the high priest orders those standing around Paul to strike him in the face. 
And what we're going to see as we continue on in this story is that Christ comforts us and encourages us on our journey. Christ comforts us and encourages us. Paul says this, I've been following God as closely as I can, and the high priest has him struck in the face. Now, that is harsh, and it is. It's out of place here, but it's a symbol of what the high priest and all the people watching Paul are thinking. They assume he just blasphemed. They look at how Paul has lived, the work that he's done with the Gentiles, feeling like Paul has undermined what God has called his people to do, and then he says, I've done this all in good faith. I've, all, I've done this all in good conscience before God, and they have him struck in the face because they don't understand the truth that God has called them to. They don't understand that God is more concerned about the heart than the physical body. People are upset that Paul is going around teaching that people don't need to become circumcised to become a follower of God. And so when he says he's done all of this in good conscience, they strike him in the face saying he's blaspheming. To which Paul responds, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. You sit there to judge me according to the law, yet you yourself violate the law by commanding that I be struck. He calls the high priest a whitewashed wall, something that looks nice on the outside, someone who seems like they're following God, but on the inside is rotting away, on the inside is corrupt. The high priest at this time was a man named Ananias, and Ananias was known for his corruption. He was known for, for stealing from his own priests. He would take the offerings that are brought for the priests and take them for himself. He was known as a violent man. And in this moment of anger, in this moment of an outburst, Paul calls him out. Not knowing who ordered it, but Paul calls out that action as somebody who's not following God. Because Paul here is brought under investigation for not following the law of God, and the high priest has him struck before he's even convicted. The high priest has brought him under investigation for not following the law, but the high priest doesn't even understand what the scriptures are talking about. They don't understand that Christ is the Messiah who's been promised to them all along, that they can't save themselves. They need to be saved through Christ. And yet they have Paul struck. And you can imagine the frustration of Paul as he stands before all of these people who are accusing him of doing wrong when he's following God and doing what God has called him to. And he's trapped and imprisoned and beaten and humiliated. Even in these moments, Paul still responds to what the Spirit is saying to him. Once he says these harsh words to the high priest, the people around him say, how dare you insult God's high priest? And this is a bit of a side, but it was one of the most challenging things that I read as I was studying this passage this week. How dare you insult God's high priest? And then Paul res responds like this, brothers, I did not realize that he was the high priest, probably because he wasn't acting like one. But Paul says, I didn't realize he was the high priest for it is written, do not speak evil about the ruler of your people. Paul apologizes for his harsh words after being struck in the face. And what we see in this 
is that although Paul doesn't respect the person and the way he's acting, Paul respects the position of authority that the high priest has over him. He's the one who acknowledges that in Exodus, the people are not allowed to speak harshly of the high priest, not allowed to speak harshly of their leader. And so here, we see Paul respects the position of authority, and that's something for me personally that I need to remember. I might not agree with the people who are in authority over me. I might disagree with their policies and what they're doing, but I better respect the position because that position is assigned by God. Now, as a person, Paul's willing to call out the high priest. He doesn't take back what he said. He calls out the high priest for the behavior that's wrong, but he respects the position. He, he apologizes and takes a more gracious approach. And I thought this was fascinating. About a year ago, I was driving with Close. We went to Heritage to go check out the campus. Close attends there now. And uh, we were driving back, and on the, the back of the vehicle in front of us, there was one of those Trudeau stickers. Yeah, those ones. And I just asked Close, right? Close was born in Burma, uh, went to a refugee camp in Thailand, right? And then came here. And I just said to Close, I was curious, Close, if somebody had a sticker like that where you're from, what would happen to them? If somebody said that about the leader of, of the, one of the countries that you were in, what would happen to them? And he said, if somebody had a sticker like that about a mayor where I come from, they'd be thrown in jail, their family would be thrown in jail, their neighbor would be thrown in jail, and they'd probably be executed. <laughs> I just thought how different we view authority in our culture. And I'm not saying that that way is right, but I think it's a reminder as we read through this, Paul's literally been struck in the face by somebody abusing their power, and yet... Although he doesn't respect the person, although he calls out the behavior of the person, he respects the position. I think that's important for us to remember as we go through this. But back to the main point I was trying to make, which is Jesus comforts us as we follow him. Jesus comforts Paul. They continue. And Paul, knowing that, that everyone in the room basically wants him silenced, Paul does something amazing. He understands that the Sanhedrin is before him, and the Sanhedrin is made up of Sadducees and Pharisees. The Sadducees holding most of the power, but the Sadducees and Pharisees, who actually disagree on a lot of big theological issues, who don't get along, they're actually opponents most of the time. They're here agreed on the fact that they want to get rid of Paul, but most of the time, they disagree with each other. And so Paul says these words, my brothers... I am a Pharisee, descended from Pharisees. I stand on trial because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead. And when Paul says that, chaos breaks out. See, one of the biggest issues between the Sadducees and the Pharisees is that the Pharisees believe in the resurrection. They believe in the spiritual world, and the Sadducees didn't. The Sadducees believe that when you die, you die. At best, when you die, you go to some dark, shadowy place. But there's no resurrection of the body. There's no next life. And so when Paul says, I'm a Pharisee, and I'm on trial because I have hope in the resurrection, the Sadducees and the Pharisees start fighting with each other, arguing over this theological issue, and the attention gets turned into the, into the debate. This past week, working at camp, I, I went in the kitchen where a couple of the staff were hanging out, and 
I know very easily how to get under Joseph's skin. I know how to get him arguing over political things, over theological. It's not hard. Anyone who knows Joseph knows how to do it. Um, and I found out Trent is very similar. You can get under Trent's skin. And so I started a debate in the kitchen that lasted probably 25 minutes. And in that 25 minutes, uh, Trent, I, and, and Joseph did no work. Well, the kitchen staff around us and Josie were doing everything. And I felt horrible. But that's what happens when you get into these heated arguments, right? You forget what you're supposed to be doing. And you get so focused on the argument. And here are the Pharisees and the Sadducees now fighting over this issue that's been brought up. And some of the Pharisees are even now starting to say, well, maybe an angel said this to, to Paul. Maybe, maybe Paul's right. He's innocent after all. And they start arguing with each other. And now the, the distraction is that nobody's talking about what Paul had actually done. But they're arguing with each other to the point where, where the commander of the centurion starts to feel like Paul's going to be ripped into pieces. And so he just ends the, the meeting. He ends it. He brings Paul, puts him back under custody, probably for Paul's safety as much as anything else, and sends everybody home because everything has been disrupted. And when Paul is back in custody, it says this in verse 11. Acts 23, verse 11. The following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, Take courage, as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify, me, testify about me in Rome. Jesus appears to Paul. He encourages him. He comforts him. And these are his words of comfort. Just like you have testified about me in Jerusalem, you will testify about me in Rome. Jesus is saying to him, your, your mission is not done yet. I have more for you. You are going to Rome. Your story is not ending here. You're going to get out of here, and you're going to go to Rome. But it's not exactly as uplifting as you and I might think on, on initial read. See, he's testified in Jerusalem, and he's ended up in prison, right? And, and Paul's going to go to Rome, and he's going to spend most of his time there in prison, Jesus is saying, I'm, I'm, I'm here, I'm encouraging you, I'm comforting you by reminding you of the mission that you have, which is not going to be easy. Paul is going to spend most of the rest of his life either in trials, being shipwrecked, and then being executed. But all the while, he preaches the gospel because Jesus comforts him. Right? This isn't a comfort where Jesus is saying, it's okay, you follow me, so everything is going to be good for you. You're going to be happy and healthy and wealthy. That's not the comfort here. The comfort here that Jesus gives is, I am with you. And even though this is going to be difficult, even though this isn't going to end the way that you would have dreamt it was going to end when you started your mission here, I am with you, and the gospel is being preached, and the kingdom is coming. Take comfort in that. It's not about happiness. In C.S. Lewis's last essay that he wrote called, We Have No Right for Happiness, he writes these words. At first, this sounds to me as odd as a right to good luck. So he's talking about the right to happiness. At first, this sounds to me as, an, as odd as a right to good luck. For I believe, whatever one school of moralists say, that we depend for a very great deal of our happiness or misery on circumstances outside all human control. A right to happiness doesn't, for me, 
make much more sense than a right to be six feet tall or have a millionaire for your father or to get good weather whenever you want to have a picnic. Paul's comfort is not found in his happiness or his circumstances because his happiness is not guaranteed. His circumstances aren't guaranteed to work the way that he wants them to. The, the comfort that Jesus gives is about the mission. It's about the gospel. I, I think about it this way. When I was younger, I used to watch The Simpsons quite a bit. And there's this episode where we see why Homer is working in the power plant still after all this time. And the episode focuses on how he hates that job. And then at the end, you find out how he gets through every day. As he looks at his wall where he has the pictures of his daughter... And he's changed the sign that says, don't forget you're here forever, to do it for her. And when he sees her face, he's encouraged and he's comforted and he's empowered to keep doing the job that he's doing. And I think when Jesus appears to Paul, we get the same kind of thing. Jesus reminds Paul who he's serving. He shows him his face. He shows him what he's doing and who he's serving and why he's going through all of these things. And when Paul looks to Jesus, he's comforted. He's encouraged to keep going. No matter what it looks like, he keeps going because Christ encourages him. And you and I might not have a vision where we see Christ's face, but we have the word of God in our hands. We can read this every day, whenever we need to. We can pray to God whenever we want. We have his spirit living inside of us. So we need to make sure that we're not ignoring that. We need to make sure that we're seeking God's face, that we're reading his word, that we're praying to him, that we're listening to his spirit as he guides us, that we're allowing God to encourage us by paying attention to who he is and his kingdom work that he is doing. As we follow him, God encourages us and comforts us by reminding us why we're doing this. He reminds us of his love, his mercy, and his grace that he has for us. And as the story continues, we see that not only does Jesus comfort Paul, but But Paul learns that that God's plans cannot be stopped. The people who are angry with Paul are frustrated that no matter what they do, they never get the justice that they think they deserve. No matter how hard they try, they can't get rid of Paul. And so a bunch of the Jewish people from Asia, the province of Asia, get together and they come up with a plan to execute Paul. And they even take an oath, swearing that they won't eat and they won't drink until they're able to kill Paul. And so they go to the Sanhedrin again, and they say, you need to ask the commander to bring Paul forward to you again. And while he's on his way there, we'll ambush them and we will execute Paul. But while they make this plan, Paul's nephew just happens to overhear it. And Paul's nephew goes to Paul and warns him. And then he's sent to the commander and he tells the commander that there are these group of people who are trying to execute Paul, that they're trying to trick you into bringing Paul forward so that they can kill him on his way. And so the commander calls for Paul. He puts together a small army. And that very night, they send, he sends Paul to uh, Caesarea with a letter 
to the governor of Judea, Felix. And in that letter, the commander, because that's what commanders do, it's a political world, talks about how he rescued Paul and how great he was and that Paul needs to go there to be safe. And so this small army leads Paul out. When they get far enough away, Paul goes with just like half the people that are there the rest of the way to Caesarea. Now, what is Caesarea? Caesarea is a city that was built by Herod the Great. We often think about how terrible Herod the Great is. The one thing he did really, really well was architecture. Uh, Herod had this city built. And this is where Herod spent most of his time. And then after Herod, this is where the governor of Judea would come and live. In this city, if you, if you look at it, uh, he, Herod made this so that it would have to be an important route in the, trade, in the trade route. There wasn't a natural harbor, so he had one built. And then he built his palace on a little peninsula that comes off the island, which would have looked something like this. I don't know if Herod had ever seen The Little Mermaid, but it reminds me of Eric's castle. I hope I'm not alone in that. But he had this beautiful palace built right on the seaside, and that's where Paul went, where he was safe. You see, Herod's big thing with architecture was it was all about power and, and like, glory, power and excess. And so they send Paul here under the, the watch of the governor where he's going to be safe, although this is what it looks like today if you were to go there now. All that splendor is just gone. But despite the execution, despite the trials, despite everything going on, God's plans can't be stopped. The nephew overhears the plan. God works through everybody involved to bring Paul to safety. And not only bring Paul to safety, bring Paul under uh, the governor of the land. No matter what the people do, they can't stop Paul. This is what John Stott writes in his commentary. Even the most careful and cunning of human plans cannot succeed if God opposes them. Isn't that a comfort to us as we seek to follow God, as we seek to, to see the gospel spread? Is that there's nothing anybody can do if God wants something to happen. There's nothing anybody can do to stop the spreading of the kingdom of God. And so Paul is brought under the protection of the governor where he's going to share the gospel with one of the most influential people in the country. He's gone from being held in Jerusalem, persecuted by people saying they're following God, to protection under the governor where he's going to share the gospel. But the last lesson we get as we read chapter 24 is that God's plans are beyond our control. Paul shares the gospel. He's brought before Felix. Felix offers a trial for Paul. So the high priest and a bunch of the elders come from Jerusalem to Caesarea. They bring with them a lawyer named Tertullus, which I, if anybody's ever seen that terrible Dana, Car uh, Dana Cavey, Carvey movie, The Master of Disguise, and he has that turtle suit on, Turtle, turtle, that's what I think of every time I see this guy's name. And I share with that with you, not because I think it's funny, but because if I have to think of that, I want you to have to think of that too. So every time you read Acts 24 from now on, you can thank me when you think of somebody in a turtle suit being a lawyer. Um, but he's brought before the governor, and they, they get there five days after Paul. And the lawyer goes before Felix, the governor, 
And he starts off by this big, big speech about how great Felix is, how thankful they are for this wise person to be overseeing Judea, and how thankful they are for the peace that he's offered them. And it's all phony. Felix was not a wise person. He got to where he was because of political moves. He, he was born a slave, but then because his brother ended up being a favorite person for Caesar, and because he was able to marry well, he married three times, two of them were princesses, he was able to get the position he had, not because he earned it, not because he was good at it, but because he played the game well. Right? He wasn't a good governor, he just got to where he was through corruption, nepotism. And not only that, he was known as one of the worst, most fierce governors when it came to the, the way that the Jewish people were treated, Anytime there was a, an inkling of an uprise, he brought violence and squashed it. And yet here is the Jewish lawyer for the religious leaders talking about how great Felix is, how much peace he's brought them, just for the leaders to get their way. And he goes on to say that Paul has been seized because he's been a pest. This is what we get here. We have found, in verse 5, we have found this man to be a troublemaker, a pest, a rat, somebody who's, who's stirring up riots among the Jews all over the world. He's a ringleader of the Nazarene sect and even tried to desecrate the temple, so we seized him. They bring these charges to Paul, saying he's causing all of this tension. He's disrupting the peace in Rome, something that the Romans, as we talked about, take very seriously. And then he says, you're a smart man. You question him yourself. And so Felix allows Paul to reply. This is what we get starting in verse 10. I know that for a number of years you have been a judge over this nation, so I gladly make my defense. You can easily verify that no more than 12 days ago I went up to Jerusalem to worship. My accusers did not find me arguing with anyone at the temple or stirring up a crowd in the synagogues or anywhere else in the city. And they cannot prove to you the charges they are now making against me. So Paul says everything they've said is fake. Everything is a lie. I came here not to cause trouble, but to worship my God. When I went into the temple, I made sure I was ritually clean. I didn't participate in any debates, any uprisings in the temple or in the city or in the synagogues. I have done nothing wrong. And that's incredibly important to, again, notice that throughout this passage, Paul shows his innocence. There's nothing Paul does that's getting in the way of his testimony of God. Paul is very careful to make sure his conversations, his actions, who he's with, are not distracting people from the message that he's been called to give. Again, he points out, in everything I do, I'm doing my best to do it in good conscience before God. We need to make sure that our behavior, our comments, our posts aren't distracting people from the love of God that we're trying to tell them about. We need to make sure that we are living lives of good conscience before God so that we don't get in the way of the message He has given for us. And after saying this, he goes on to this. This is where 
it gets fascinating to me. However, I admit that I worship the God of our ancestors as a follower of the way, which they call a sect. I believe everything that is in accordance with the law and that is written in the prophets. And I have the same hope in God as these men themselves have, that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. So I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. After an absence of several years, I came to Jerusalem to bring my people gifts for the poor and to present offerings. I was ceremonially clean when they found me in the temple courts doing this. There was no crowd with me, nor was I involved in any disturbance. But there are some Jews from the province of Asia who ought to be here before you and bring charges if they have anything against me. Or these who are here should state what crime they found in me when I stood before the Sanhedrin. Unless it was this one thing I shouted as I stood in their presence, it is concerning the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you today. Paul, in his defile, goes to the gospel again. When you have these leaders trying to get him, and it's important to remember here that that it's not all Jewish people that are trying to execute Paul here. It's the religious leaders trying to protect their jobs. Paul is a Jewish man, right? There are Jewish people who converted and followed Jesus. The issue here is the people who are corrupted by their power trying to execute him. And he looks at those people and he looks at the governor of the whole province of Judea and says, I believe in God. I worship my Lord. I believe that everything in the scriptures is true. He preaches the gospel. He talks about the hope of the resurrection to these people. The hope of the resurrection of the righteous and the wicked. Praying, I believe, that these people would accept the hope that Jesus offers and become the righteous and not the wicked. That they would be saved. He preaches the gospel to them while he's on trial. But they reject it. They don't listen. And so Felix ends the meeting just like the commander of the centurions did. But Felix's wife, his third wife, his current wife at the time Paul was on trial, Drusilla, was Jewish. And she knew of the way. She knew of the church. She knew of the Christians, and she wanted to hear a little more about it. So they bring Paul to talk with them. And again, he starts talking about the gospel. In verse 25, it says, As Paul... Oh, sorry. Verse 24. Several days later, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish. He sent for Paul and listened to him as he spoke about faith in Christ Jesus. As Paul talked about righteousness, self-control, and judgment to come, Felix was afraid and said, that's enough for now. You may leave. When I find it convenient, I will send for you. So here's the governor. He's married to Drusilla. Drusilla is the daughter of Herod Agrippa I. She's a, a princess. Two significant people, and Paul has this opportunity to share the gospel. And he starts talking about the hope that they have in Jesus. And he starts talking about the new life that they can have, free of the guilt and shame that their sin leads to. The reason these two are married is because Felix seduced Drusilla and stole her from her previous husband. And so when they start to hear of the salvation but the change of life, it doesn't sit well with them. They become afraid and they send him away. And Felix, this man who was known for their violence, his violence, two years keeps Paul 
under prison. He can't find any reason to convict Paul, so he says, I'm going to wait till the commander comes up, and I'll make my decision then, but he never comes. And for two years, Paul's kept under prison. He hasn't done anything wrong, and he's a Roman citizen, so he's allowed to have visitors. He's allowed a little bit of freedom, but he's still kept under guard. Everywhere Paul goes, there's a guard with him for two years. And during that time, he's still able to talk with Felix. But as far as we know, Felix never has that change of heart. Two years later, he's kicked out because he's too violent with the Jewish people. And then, later on, he's executed. And so Paul here has spoken the gospel to the the religious leaders, the elders who were there, the lawyer who was there, the commander of the centurions. He's, He's spoken and preached the gospel to Felix, the governor, and his wife, Drusilla. And none of them have these big conversion stories. And as we're reading through Acts, I think that's what we've come to expect, is Paul preaches the gospel and people's hearts are changed. And I'm sure Paul wanted, with everything he had, to watch those lives change, but it never happens. But he doesn't get discouraged because he's still on mission for God. The kingdom of God is still growing. He's still on his way to Rome, the most significant city at that time, where the gospel is going to spread like wildfire. He's still preaching the gospel because Jesus is his Lord and Savior. He keeps going, and that's a great reminder for us, is as we're called to follow God and make serving him and preaching his gospel the main purpose in our life, his plans are beyond our control. I'm sure all of us in this room have people that we've been praying for for a long time, people that we've been sharing the gospel with for what feels like forever, and we haven't seen any changes. And it's incredibly disheartening. It's incredibly painful to see that. But we're called to keep moving, keep preaching the gospel. Paul never stops, right? Until those meetings are shut down by somebody else, Paul keeps preaching the gospel. Until Felix is removed from his position, Paul keeps preaching the gospel. He keeps going because he's been called to do so, because he wants to see those lives change. And he just prays that God is going to save those people But he trusts that whatever God has in store is better than anything he can ever imagine. And that's so hard to do, but that's what Paul does here. And he knows that as he goes and he preaches the gospel, people are going to hear it. People's lives are going to be changed. The world is going to be changed from what God is doing. His kingdom is coming. And one day, Paul will stand with his God forever, for all of eternity. And so despite the pain of seeing his message fall upon ears that don't receive it, he keeps trying, he keeps going, he keeps trusting that God's plans are better than what he can plan for himself. No matter the pain, he just keeps going because we can't control what God is going to do. All we can do is offer the life that we have in service of him and preach the gospel. And so why is all of this worth it? Why is all of this the best plan that we can have? Why is it the best thing we can do to center our lives around God's calling for us to share the gospel? Over and over again in this passage, we see it's because our hope is the hope of the resurrection. That's what Paul comes to over and over again. Our hope is the hope of the resurrection. As surely as Jesus is alive, God's kingdom is coming. As surely as Jesus is alive, I will one day be face to face with my God for all of eternity. As surely as Jesus is alive, people's lives are being saved. 
People who are trapped in their sin are being rescued. People who are against Jesus are turning to him. As surely as God is alive, as surely as Jesus has risen, the kingdom of God will come. And so we follow him. We preach. We teach the gospel. We share our lives with people knowing that Jesus has already claimed victory that he will return, and when he does, he will eliminate all sin, all shame, and bring us face to face with our God if we've accepted the gift on the cross and seen our sins forgiven. So we preach because we're a part of something bigger than we could ever imagine on our own. Our hope is the hope of the resurrection, eternity with our Lord and Savior, our God. And if you haven't accepted that today, I encourage you to do so now encourage you to take the purpose, the meaning, the love that God has for you and be a part of his plan, be a part of his kingdom coming. Embrace the love of your God as seen through Christ on the cross who died for our sins and rose again, bringing us to new life. Because that's what our life is all about, the hope of the resurrection and serving him. We're going to take communion now. I'm going to invite the band to come back up to remember that hope that we have to remember Christ our King and be encouraged as we seek to follow Him, encouraged to share the gospel wherever we go, to be encouraged that He is changing lives and calling people to Him. And so if you're someone here today who's accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, we're going to pass around the, the communion baskets. I'm going to encourage you to take that cup and just reflect. The song's going to play, and I'm going to come back up, and we're going to take communion together. But this is something for people who've accepted the, the forgiveness that Christ has given them. People who are following Christ and need that reminder of, of who he is as we seek to follow him with all that we are. If you're not that person here today, just let that basket go by you. Take this time to reflect and, and, and don't feel obligated to take it. In fact, don't take it if you're not somebody who has accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And also, if there's anyone that you have to Seek forgiveness from or give forgiveness to. I encourage you to do that before we take communion. We do this as a church family together. This is an act of our family together, worshiping God, remembering who he is. This past week, uh, actually for all of camp with our 310 volunteers, our junior high, high school volunteers, uh, we've been going through Matthew 5 and, and the Sermon on the Mount. And just recently, we talked about how Jesus told people, if you've come all the way to Jerusalem to make an offering to God and restore your relationship with him, but you still have an issue with somebody back home, you go home and take care of that issue first. And for some of the people listening to him, that meant going 80 miles back home, dealing with that and then coming back. And surely if Jesus is saying that to them, we can walk across a gym. So if we're taking communion, we do that together and we restore our relationship. So as we reflect, reflect on the sacrifice that Jesus has for us, that he gave his body and his blood for us to be restored to God the Father and invited us into his kingdom and into the kingdom work that he's doing. And I'm going to come back up here and lead us in communion after that.